Romans chapter 8. Several years ago, my family and I were in Portland, Oregon, and they have a really cool museum. If you ever get to Portland, they have this OMSI Museum, and it is about as nice of a museum as you could imagine. It's got everything for kids, for adults. It is super cool. And they have this one exhibit when we were taking the tour there. It's called The Amazing Feats of Aging, and it's a fascinating deal where they're actually looking and showing you the mysteries of aging, looking at it for animals and and humans. And then they have this one part of the exhibit where you look into a screen and they will then, it transforms your face to what you will look like 25 years into the future, okay? And I'm like, so I'm doing this. There should have been like a danger sign or some sort of flashing light, like do not do this unless you want to be depressed for the next 60 years or whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'll give it a shot, you know? So I like sit there and like, whoa, Karina is married to one good looking guy 25 years from now, okay? <laughs> I mean, she doesn't have much to work with now, but it's going to get better. No, I was like, what? Oh, I had back away, get the kids out of the exhibit. We're moving on, okay? I mean, that's, it was just kind of amazing. But life is like that. You need to know that your life is going to shape you. It's going to shape your life, change you, transform you, develop you, and it'll potentially destroy you. But what's going on today has a lot of influence of what you're going to be like tomorrow. Richard Halverson, who is the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, uh, had this really interesting way of helping people to think about their future. And so this is what he'd say. Give this following image. He'd say, you're going to meet an old man or woman, if you'd like to work it in there and modify this, someday down the road, 10, 30, 50 years from now, waiting there for you. You'll be catching up with him or her. What kind of old man are you going to meet? He may be a seasoned, soft, gracious fellow, a gentleman who has grown old gracefully, surrounded by a host of friends friends who call him blessed because of what his life has meant to them, or he may be a bitter, disillusioned, dried-up old buzzard without a good word for anyone, soured, friendless, and alone. That old man will be you. He'll be the composite of everything you do, say, and think, today and tomorrow. His mind will be a mold that you have made by your beliefs. His heart will be turning out what you've been putting into. Every little thought, every deed goes into this old man. Every day in every way, you are becoming more and more like yourself. Amazing but true, you're beginning to look more like yourself, think more like yourself, and talk more like yourself. You're becoming more yourself more and more. Live only in terms of what you're getting out of life, and the old man gets smaller, drier, harder, crabbier, more self-centered. Open your life to others. Think in terms of what you can give, your contribution to life. And the old man grows larger, softer, kindlier, and greater. And so I'd like to ask you, who are you going to meet down the road? And a big part of the answer to that question is how you learn how to handle hardships. If you don't know how to handle them, You don't have a a Christ-centered perspective to them, a scripture-saturated understanding of how to handle hardships. I can tell you who you're going to meet down the road, and you're not going to like it. Because we all face hardships and difficulties. No one is exempt from the storms, 
But one of the questions that every single person needs to be able to answer is, how in the world do you find hope in the face of hardship? Aging is automatic. You know what? You're automatically getting old. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just happening. Maturity, on the other hand, is a process, and it is not guaranteed. You can grow old and not grow mature. And it is not a pretty picture when you have old people that are immature, right? Not like you know anybody like that, but it's, it's not. But how are you going to handle the hardships in your life? Well, your response to that is going to significantly shape who you are and who you'll meet down the road. For you as a Christian, you can have significant hope in the face of hardship. And I want to point out from Romans chapter 8, this is such an amazing passage. You take it to heart, it will change your life. You know why we can have hope in the face of hardship? We have a perfect future. Not a lot in life that we can say is perfect. But you and I, we've got, if we're trusting in Christ, we have a perfect future. Just to recap a little bit from last week, look what he said in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, by which you have, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God has literally, legally adopted you, brought you into his family, and you can actually call him Father. God wants his children to grow in the context of intimacy, of amazing love. He wants you to know that he loves you tremendously and he's brought you into his family and you can call him father. You, he wants an intimate relationship with you. Just like any parent that ever adopts any kid, they want deepness, heart, soul, connection. So God desires that with his children. And we know that we're his children because look at even verse 16. He says, For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. God literally reinforces in our hearts, you're my child. Of course you're not perfect. Of course you struggle with sin, but there is somehow God works in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls that it reinforces over and over we are one of his children. And if, look at verse 17, and if children were heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, we are going to receive a glorious inheritance. Remember we talked a little bit about like this last week? What we're going to receive is we receive eternal salvation. We hardly even know what that means. But not only do we will never face a struggle for sin, we are going to receive all the glories of what it means to be with God himself because we receive God himself. We'll be with him. We're going to re receive glory. We're going to share in his glory. And everything in the universe that is created, God says belongs to us because we belong to Christ. That is everything with one exception, worship. Because all worship goes to God, and when we receive and see this perfect future that we're receiving, it is going to evoke from us worship, exaltation. I mean, there'll be no half-hearted like, oh, okay, I gotta sing a song. You will not be able to help yourself because of the glorious inheritance that we receive. But notice what the text says. We like that. We like the idea that, wow, I mean, we try to make it through this life, and it's going to be so much better in the life to come. But notice what he says in verse 17. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if, verse 17, indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. 
You see, we like to think that life is just kind of like, man, if we could just kind of have it like a slide in which you go down and it's, it's all fun and people are giggling and spraying water at us or something like that, and then we hit the end and it's just glorious and wonderful. We'd like to think that that's what life is like, but it is not. Life has suffering, and suffering tells us for the Christian we're actually on the right path. That's what he says we are going to suffer with him, so we'll be glorified with him. Life is really more like an obstacle course. It's, have you ever done an obstacle course or one of those like challenge races? You know, it takes all the strength that you've got and you're not sure what the next obstacle is coming at you and you're crawling through the mud and under the barbed wire and maybe they got fire that you have to jump through and you're hopefully not going to get singed and then it's one rigorous uh, challenge after another. That's kind of what life is like. But you ever finish one of those races? Man, it is awesome, right? Whoa, it's done. It's finished. I did it. I made it. That's what life is like. If I were to tell you that you are going to go to a place that is glorious, fascinating, awesome, far greater than you could ever imagine, but your journey is going to take you through mountains and deserts, through dry times, through wonderful times, times of pain, times of peace, times of joy, times of great struggle. And if I told you that's what your journey is going to get like, but eventually you will get to this glorious place, then you would expect that you're going to face difficulties and challenges. You may not know what they're next, what's next, but you know they're coming. So it is with the Christian life. But we don't like that. We don't like the, the fact that there's suffering and those are indicators that we're on the right road. Now, this is somewhat of a Western mindset problem. Most Christians around the world, they actually embrace suffering as God's means of developing them and maturing them. It brings a greater sense of dependency upon God. Let me introduce you to Ajith Fernando. He is a Christian leader from Sri Lanka. He ministers to the urban poor in Sri Lanka, okay? Very different than where you and I live. And this is what he writes, quote, The church in each culture has its own special challenges theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The good life, comfort, convenience, and painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think that something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. I remember one time I was painting my kid's swing set, and I was listening to a tape of Howard Hendricks, and he was speaking about when he went over to Eastern Asia and he was speaking at this leadership conference and there was all these leaders from all these different countries and they were gathered there together. And, it, and he finishes the conference and he has this little Q&A time. And the first question that he had was some guy out there. He thanked him for all the training that he brought. And he said, but when are you going to talk about suffering? And it hit him. I don't talk about suffering because I try to avoid it. But these people, suffering is a way of life. 
and had him completely rework his understanding and theology of what it means to develop and mature in Christ as a leader and as a person. You see, suffering has a significant role in the development of God's people. And you need to expect it. We try to avoid it. But Jesus made it clear we're going, if we follow him, we're going to follow in his steps. Remember Peter? When he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he said this, for you have been called for this purpose. What purpose is that? For since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow. Christ suffered, he left you an example, and you follow in his steps. If our Lord suffered, why do we think we're going to be exempt? We follow him. And that means that we're going to endure some hardships and some difficulties. Trials are going to precede the fullness of our triumph in Christ. And so he goes on to say in verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What you and I are going through right now, it pales in comparison to the magnificent glory that we and I are about to experience. And we go through sufferings, don't we? We face perhaps persecution. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face it a lot more. I mean, someone gives us a, a weird look, and we're starting to experience it a little bit more and more in our country. It will get worse. But I'm not aware of anybody here in our church that like, uh, has had their life threatened recently or died because of their profession of faith. But that is very real for fellow Christians around the world. But it's not only just persecution. It could be any suffering. Suffering's sickness, injury, natural disaster, financial loss, poverty, hunger, death. Life is filled with struggles. And it's painful. And it's difficult. And notice what the text is saying. Even creation is longing for the release and the revealing of the sons of God. Look at what he says in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. It's as if creation, it's like personified as wanting the revelation of God's children. Those who've been adopted when they're actually revealed to be redeemed and they're living in bodies that are fit for eternity. Creation itself is waiting for this. And look at verse 20. It says, for the creation was subjected to futility. It was unable to achieve its purpose or its goal. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. When Adam and Eve plunged humanity into God's judgment, not only humanity, but even creation was subjected to a difficulty. The, the world as we know it and, it, and it's, frankly, there's a lot of wonderful places in our world. Like Waco, for instance. I mean, it's nice, right? I'm thinking that we should rename this place Paradise, but that's just a personal thought of mine, Right? But there's other really beautiful places in the world, right? Like Montana, right? Okay? The Northwest. But you can travel. And I know that you don't, if you're a good Texan, you don't have to leave Texas. But if you do, there's places like Niagara Falls. If you become a world traveler, you can see some amazingly beautiful places. But it's not what it want, will be one day. Literally, the earth will flourish. It's no longer under a curse and it's waiting eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. And so he says, verse 21, we're, it's waiting in hope. For the, verse 21, for the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans 
and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Just like a woman in labor. Painful, difficulty. When will this end? But when the child is born, it's like, yeah, that was difficulty, but now we have this child. And you don't really think a whole lot about how painful and difficult that was, right? So it is with creation. Literally, going through pains, turmoil. But what is to come, it just it pales in comparison. And when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen where creation is literally going to flourish like this? Well, it's really going to happen in two stages. First, it's going to happen in when Christ's kingdom is on earth. This is prophesied like in Isaiah and multiple places, you know, where the, the lion and the lamb will lie down. In Christ's millennial kingdom, found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where Christ literally will reign on the earth. It is the hope of the believers. It is a promise. He came the first time. He promised to come back a second. And when he does, the curse will be lifted and the earth will flourish and the sons of God, the children of God will be revealed. And it'll be awesome. But there's a second stage to it. And it is in the fashioning and the presentation of the new heavens and the new earth that you find in Revelation 21 and following where literally creation itself will flourish and be all that God intended. The curse will be lifted because Christ has satisfied God's wrath and it will be awesome. But not only does creation groan, waiting for this perfect future, we do. Look at verse 23. And not only this, but we also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We're waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We, we want to be released. Their life is painful. It creates hurt, pain, tears, groaning. And we're waiting, for, we're waiting for this release. We're waiting for this fullness of redemption. But we're hoping in it. Look what he says in verse 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? We, we have received, like he says in verse 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. We see the Spirit of God creating Christ-likeness. There's character about us that is different because of our relationship with Christ. It's the first fruits. It's just like a farmer, when he's got that first fruit, whether it be he's got fruit trees or he's got grain, the Israelites would actually bring that to God in the feast of first fruits. It's like, we're giving this to you, but they also knew that as a far greater harvest is to come. This is the first, more to come. So it is with us. We see the working of the Spirit of God in our lives. We are living differently. We're being changed. There is a hope. We believe we're a a part of the God's adopted family. But it's just beginning. It's the first fruits. And we are hoping for a finality to it. We're a full completion. And he says, verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. You see, if you have something, you're not hoping for something. So like some of you right now are, are hoping for a, a wonderful dinner after church, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys are eating good like us, like, you know, hot dogs and chips or something like that, right? You're hoping for it. But if you've already had your wonderful, glorious hot dog meal with Doritos and Mountain Dew even, if you've already have it, are you still hoping for it? Well, no, I already got it. And that's what the text is saying. You see, if you've already seen it, you don't have to hope for it because you already have it. One day, we're going to have this perfect future. And present troubles become manageable when we start living with this kind of perspective. 
This is something that Paul reinforced over and over again in his letters. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he says, Therefore do we, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He says, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. What you and I are going through, our pain, our hardships, it's momentary. Body breakdown, pain, suffering, grief, bereavement, it is temporary. And what is to come is far more glorious. You want to have hope in the face of hardship? You need to know that we've got a perfect future. Keep thinking about that. But let me show you something else. Look at verses 26 through 28 here. This is just amazing territory that we're in. Let me tell you something else, why you and I can have hope in the face of hardships. Not only do we have a perfect future, but we have a present help. Check out verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, the very one that we receive, who actually takes up residency in our life when we believe in Christ, he also helps our weakness helps is in the greek it's present tense meaning it's ongoing it's not like a one time i think i'll help you here but not here he always keeps helping he helps our weakness for we do not pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words so he says we don't know how to pray as we should we are weak I know we like to come across that we're strong, right? But we're not. We got physical weaknesses, mental, emotional, spiritual weaknesses. We, our life could be categorized as weakness. And yet, the Spirit of God helps us. He literally comes alongside, He carries us, and He allows for faithful living. It's God's Spirit that does this. He is a very present help. If you want to be faithful, effective, guess where that comes from? It comes from God's Spirit. If you want to witness for the Lord, if you want to live lives of faithfulness, you want to have some semblance of morality, guess where that comes from? It comes from God. And notice what the text says. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. It's the Spirit of God who's groaning. Now, I know that the charismatic movement has taken verse 26 and said, ah, look at that. Then that's where the spiritual language comes in. That's where speaking in tongues comes from. But who is doing the groaning too deep for words? The believer? No, it's the Spirit. The Spirit of God does it. It's, it's like the Spirit of God is praying that we will accomplish God's will. In fact, he says that in verse 27. He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What is he praying? The Spirit of God is praying that you and I will fulfill the will of God, which is found in the Word of God. And by the way, if you want to bump up your prayer life from simplistic to significant, pray according to the will of God. Well, that'd be great, but what is the will of God? Where is it revealed? It's revealed in the Word. Try it. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, Colossians chapter 1. These are just examples of New Testament prayers. And when you read them, you're like, wow, that's a lot different than how I pray. I'm always praying about, I want to have a nice day, and I have to be around nice people, and things work out nicely in my life, right? All right? We pray that way. We're very narcissistic, very self-centered. It's all about me. But God, on the other hand, 
wants it all about him and about learning to express the life and the love of Christ to others. And so that's what the Spirit of God is doing. He's groaning, and his, these prayers are effective. Now, when you remember what Jesus promised, remember in John 14, like in verse 16 and verse 26, right before Christ goes to the cross, he has what is called the upper room discourse. And in John 14, he says, listen, I'm going to make you a promise. I am going to send you the helper, the paraclete. I am going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is going to comfort you. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to be an advocate. He is going to lead you into all truth. And I'm sending him to you. And that's exactly what happens at Pentecost. Remember? And the Spirit of God takes up residence in our life. And Romans 8, 26 and 27 shows us that God not only teaches us and comforts us, but the Spirit of God actually prays for us. It's as if we're kind of like having the curtains drawn back and we're seeing just this amazing passage that reveals this intercessory work among the interchange, among the Trinity, where the Spirit of God is always praying for His people to accomplish God's will. To me, uh, this is fascinating. And He's, I mean, you and I, we go through disease and death decay, deterioration. Do you know that through all of our hardships and all of the difficulties, did you know that the Spirit of God is right with us? And I, I see this as a, as a pastor. At times, I'm involved in, in people's most difficult moments. I've seen mothers kiss their little babies because they didn't make it. I've been in multiple funeral situations. I've held hands of ladies walking in to find out if their husband's still alive. You're involved in car accidents. You're involved in emotional breakdown. You're involved in mental breakdown. And you see people unraveled. I've seen people literally on the ground because of the sin of their spouse. I've seen people just literally, it seems like their souls are being ripped from their bodies. But I know this. In the midst of their pain, the Spirit of God is interceding on their behalf. I think about it in my own week and the trials and the difficulties I face. Like, wow, I am actually not alone. Despite how hard this is and how difficult it is, the Spirit of God is right there and He's interceding on my behalf. He is appealing for me and I realize I am never alone. And that's what you need to do. You take this passage and you take it to heart. You aren't alone. I know, I know life is hard. I, just even looking around, seeing all my friends, I know some of the tragedies and the difficulties you're facing. Children making tragic errors, financial ruin, health issues, cancer, what's going on with mom, all these problems. But you need to know that the Spirit of God is interceding, He's praying that the will of God would be accomplished in your life. And that gives us hope because I'm never alone. How can you and I have hope in the face of hardship? Well, know this. We've got a perfect future. Don't live for here now. Live for eternity. It's going to be awesome. You can take God at his word on it. You got a present help. We have a present help. He is right here with us. In fact, he's praying even now that you would take him at his word and realize I am always with you. But let me give you one other amazing truth. Not only do we have a perfect future and a present help, we have a profound faith. When you come to Romans 8.28, this verse perhaps might be the most glorious promise in all of Scripture. It, it's breathtaking in terms of its magnitude. It encompasses all of life. This verse you should memorize. 
Romans 8:28. Look at the profound faith that we have. And he says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we know intuitively. It may not be our experience. We may not see it now, but we know that God is going to work all things together for good. It doesn't say that God works all these things and all these things are good. Because frankly, a lot of the stuff is not good. Think of your situations, your suffering, your persecution, your failure, your pain, your lack of faith. Are those good? No. But God, you want to see how profound our faith is? You want to see God for who he is? He can work all things together for his good. That means seen and unseen, the good and the bad, the real, even the imagined, our failures, our temptations, our sin, even that. God can work all these things together for his good. What this text tells us is that God stands sovereign even over our suffering, our temptation, whatever it be. Now, you're looking at this and it says, God works all things together for good. This is oftentimes what people think. Good, okay, what do I think is good? Good would be like if I got a better car. Uh, good would be if I had more money, nicer job, and we start associating with stuff, right? Or good would be like, my, my kids respect me, finally, for a change, or, you know, or I'm loved, or whatever it is. And we kind of assign and figure out what we think good is. But what is good from God's estimation? Do you know what it is? We well, don't have to guess. He tells us, actually, in the very next verse, in verse 29, this is the good that God is working toward. He says, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here it is, to become conformed to the image of his son. This is what God is seeking to accomplish in the lives of his children, that you and I become like Christ. That's why we go through sufferings. Suffering literally rips us from our self-centered humanity. It chops away and cuts and chisels and fashions and shapes and sands down all the rough edges of our humanity. It confronts our self-centeredness and what he's doing is he's making us more like Christ. That's what the Spirit of God is interceding for, is that you and I would be like him, praying according to his word, that we would look like and be like and reflect Jesus Christ. That is spiritual maturity, and that is the end to which God is working in your life. And you know what he's using? He's using all things, even your failure, even your sin, He's using all things to bring conformity to Christ, to bring closer fellowship to God, to bear fruit for the kingdom, to, preach, to, to reach a point of final glorification. And so don't think like my, my job loss and my health issues and my relational problems and the fact that some people really close to me have passed away, that God isn't using those things. You know that difficult person that you have to work with? I could, this would be very interesting. I said, how many of you work with a very difficult person? And I bet everyone would like, huh. It's like, what in the world? We've all got them. There's, there's problems and it's difficult. You know what? God even uses those things. Why do we have all of this? What is God trying to accomplish? God has two purposes in his plan. When you go through suffering, there's two reasons why. For your good, that you become 
like Christ and for his glory. He is glorified in the process as you struggle through and you bring yourself to a place where it's just all about Christ and I am trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Your tragedies, your heartbreak, your frustration, your bereavement, your disappointments, your discouragements, the failures, all things together for his good. And notice what he says. He says to work together. That, that's one Greek word, and it's actually where we get the word synergy, where God takes the problems and the evil and the difficulties and the brokenness, and he works it together for his good. It's kind of like you can take like harmful chemicals and they can actually be put together and make something good out of it. So for instance, most of you like salt on your food, right? Did some burgers last night or steaks or something like that. Put some salt on there, makes it taste better. But what is salt made of? Does anybody know? Do we have any people that didn't fail chemistry in our church? Okay. We, yeah, there we go. Sodium and chlorine. Now sodium on its own, chlorine on its own, guess what? Poisonous. Try eating chlorine. Put that on the burgers. See how that works. Don't, don't do it. It'll kill you, okay? It's poisonous. But together, sodium, chloride, guess what? They make salt. It brings flavor, taste. It preserves. That's what struggles do and our hardships. If you want a classic example of this from the Old Testament, consider Joseph. You remember Joseph? Young guy, had some big dreams, some pretty wild dreams told those dreams to his brothers. The brothers didn't like those dreams so much. They hated this guy, this younger brother, Joseph, with his crazy dreams. So they thought he'd kill him. But then they, you know, and they were going to do that, but then they had another idea. What if we don't kill him? What if we try to make money on him? Because if he's dead, he's dead. But if we could make some money on this, we at least have a party in his name, okay? So they did. They sold him into slavery. And he gets, Joseph gets hauled off into Egypt. Remember that? And then, but, but Joseph is trying to faithfully walk with God. He's a slave. Uh, he gets esteemed. He has a real high position. In fact, he's got everything Potiphar has to offer except his wife. But his wife, you know, kind of takes an attraction to Joseph and pretty bad situation there. And Joseph says, no, uh, 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 this is not right. I'm hightailing it out of here. And she accuses him of trying to take advantage of her. Remember that? That ends Joseph, our faithful boy. He ends up in prison. It's in prison that there's these two, remember the baker? Remember that guy? And it wasn't the candlestick maker. But remember, they had these two guys and a cupbearer. And they, and they had a dream. And Joseph interprets that dream. And, it, and his interpretation is exactly the way it happens. And eventually they remember several years later, because Pharaoh has a dream and he can't get it. But they go, ah, you know what? I remember there is one in jail. His name's Joseph. He, he's got God's mind on these dreams. And so Pharaoh brings him in, cleans him up, and he's brought before Pharaoh. And Joseph tells him not only what his dream means, but he actually gives him the wisdom so that his nation will not perish in an upcoming famine. Joseph is then brought to the number two position in the Egyptian empire, a man of immense power. And not only has he saved the Egyptian nation, Joseph then it preserves the lives of his family because his brothers all come back because they're all starving to death, right? And he preserves the life of his entire family. And you remember, he eventually brings him down to Egypt and everything is great until... Joseph's dad dies, and then the boys think, oh, now he's going to really take it out on us, right? He's been good while dad's alive, but now he is going to just make our lives miserable. And they're all fearful. And remember what Joseph told his fearful brothers? Genesis 50, it kind of ends this way, the book of Genesis. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God, you know what? He meant it for good 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's how God works. You meant it for evil. There are a lot of folks trying to do a lot of evil, maybe even evil toward you. God's going to work that together for good. What's that good? You're going to become more like Christ. Even the Spirit of God is interceding for that. It's like Johnny Erickson Tata put it. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. And that's exactly the story of our lives. And if you want the the culminating, the greatest illustration of this, all you have to look at is the sacrifice and the crucifixion of of, of Christ on the cross. Remember, Satan, culminating act. We will put the Christ to death. And he did. That orchestrated those events. But God is the one who put his son through it. And you know what? God took the cross and turned it to the culminating ultimate victory. That's where you and I have salvation. He accomplished it, and that's how God works. He works all things, all things, even the evil things, together for good. For who? For, don't, don't miss this. It's to specific people, to those who love God, that your heart is for him, that you have an affection for God. You not just know about him, but you actually like him and love him to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who've not only been summoned to salvation, you've heard the gospel, but you've received it and he's given you salvation. He's called you. If you love God and you're called by him, you need to know this. No matter what you're going through, God is working all things together for good. I remember when I was a kid watching my mom bake there's nothing like mom's homemade treats, you know? And it's, you know, all the treats that my mom made were really good. And so you kind of get the idea that, well, if the treats are good, the ingredients have to be just that good as well, right? And so I remember at different times tasting some of the individual ingredients. Have you ever had just flour? Just put flour in your mouth. Check that out. It's like terrible, right? Or vanilla extract. I mean, all these things that you make a cake with, put an egg, raw egg, ugh, you know, I'd do it on a dare, but it's, it's not really good. I remember the baking chocolate, like thinking like, this is about as good as chocolate will ever be. Have you ever tried a bite of baking chocolate? (laughs) Tastes like you're eating dirt. (laughs) How could this equate to this wonderful cake? These ingredients are terrible. Most of them taste awful. But you know, my mom, she had this like idea that she was wise and she had a recipe and she was able to metamorphosize all these ingredients and mix them together in just the right amounts and put them into an oven that was pretty hot and just for the right amount of time and pull it out and it would be an awesome cake. Well, that's kind of how it is with us. God takes our trials and our problems, our hurts and our sufferings and they are painful, they are not easy. Whether we lose our job or break our leg or our house burns down or or even when our children even pass away. God works all these sufferings together for his good, for our good, and for his glory. And it makes us like Christ. And so what you and I need to do, we need to keep this perspective. So who are you going to meet down the road 10, 20 years from now? Who are you going to meet? A lot has to do with what you're going to do with this text. If you want real hope in the face of hardships, it is found in loving God. For in loving God, it gives us the hope that we will have and need to face the hardships in our life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for an amazing passage of Scripture. And God, would you weave these truths into our lives that we might have your hope and your perspective? 
and that we would live life in light of your son's glorious return and our perfect future, knowing that you are a very present help. And give us great faith, Lord, to trust you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.